Super Bowl is the nation's number one reason to throw a party, with millions of us digging into the drinks and snacks, the chips and the dip. But there's an etiquette to eating those foods, built on our conceptions of sanitation. For example, what do you do when you've dipped your chip, taken a bite, and you still have half a chip left? Do you dip it again and perhaps contaminate the dip? Do you turn the chip around and dip the other end? Or is double dipping really not that big a deal? The recommendation is certainly during cold and flu season from the CDC as you cover your mouth when you sneeze. The fact of the matter is that that's how colds and flu spread through the population is you're touching something or someone sneezes and touches a doorknob. It's not really a mystery how it gets from one person to another, and that's primarily through the bacteria in the oral cavity. So this would be just one other way that it might be transferred. That's Dr. Paul Dawson, professor of food, nutrition, and packaging science at Clemson University. And yes, he's done controlled studies on just how much bacteria can be spread by double dipping. The analogy we use is kind of crude way to say it, but if someone's double dipping and you're actually kissing each person in the room, they're pretty much spreading their saliva to the dip. So People kiss each other and they get along fine, but it is a way that germs are spread. Dawson and his team originally didn't think that double dipping would spread very many germs. After all, most of the chip or cracker that's contacted by your mouth stays in your mouth. So they initially ran an experiment using sterile water as a dip. We found that a thousand bacteria in the solution that had been exposed to chips that had been bit versus below detection on the ones that had not been bitten. So a thousand to one there. It's about a thousand bacteria per milliliter. And again, to give a kind of a ballpark figure of what a milliliter would be, if you kind of estimate that if you pulled out a chip of salsa and on the chip, you'd probably have 20 to 30 milliliters of salsa, so about 20, 30 times that. So, you know, potentially there could be quite a lot. We did a controlled study of 20 mils of water, dipping a chip in that and then measuring the amount of bacteria transferred after three times. And we found about 1,000 bacteria in that first study. So we were surprised at that, actually. Dawson's team then considered different kinds of dip and whether that makes a difference. Salsa dips, for example, are more acidic than cheese dips, and bacteria don't like acid. Once again, the researchers initially simulated double dipping under controlled conditions. So we took the sterile water again and adjusted the pH levels to 4, 5, and 6, and want to compare those different pH levels, thinking that maybe the lower pH, the more acidic, would have an inhibitory effect on the bacteria that was transferred, maybe get rid of it right away. Actually, we found that there was an effect. We actually held the solution there two hours, kind of simulating what might happen at a party, and it dropped the levels down still pretty high in the hundreds per milliliter, but there was a acidity effect in the lowest pH, still very high levels. Those results proved to Dawson that double dipping can indeed be trouble. So it was time to move on to real food to see if the results held. We found that there were, again, about 500,000 more bacteria per milliliter initially than when you didn't bite. Interesting thing was, though, that salsa, we didn't expect this because we just used water before. The salsa actually had a higher transfer rate to the dip than did the chocolate and cheese initially. And thinking about it, kind of obvious that salsa is much thinner, a lower viscosity. So when you dip it in the dipping solution, more of that salsa falls back into the common bowl or remains there than would be with the cheese, which would adhere greater to the chip. Numbers were about five times higher in the salsa than they were in the cheese. However, the acid present in salsa dip kills more bacteria over time than in a cheese dip. So within about two hours, the dips end up about equal in bacteria content. Dawson says there's also a little less opportunity for double dipping with cheese dip because it's thicker. That means people eat more of it per chip. We also 
put the uh, dip on a scale in a bowl and dip three or four times and measure the average amount of dip that's carried by each cracker or chip. And that's when we found out that a lot more is carried back out of the bowl to the mouth with the cheese. It adheres better. It's thicker than it is with the salsa. So, yeah, I would assume if you had given the same amount of dip and the same number of dippers, the cheese dip would be used up first. But double dipping is only one of the important snack food contamination questions Dawson and his team have investigated. They've also probed the validity of the well-known five-second rule, which says any food dropped on the floor is still clean enough to eat if you pick it up within five seconds. Reportedly, 70% of women and nearly 60% of men adhere to the five-second rule. But where did the rule come from in the first place? Dawson says the most likely place may be an extremely popular TV cooking show. Julia Child made a comment, I think, on one show. Then it was misquoted. But in general, she made a comment that if she dropped something in the kitchen and picked it up, if nobody sees it, it's going to be okay. So I think that's kind of where it may have started. We're not really sure. Dawson investigated the five-second rule, again with controlled studies, counting bacteria transferred to food after five seconds, 30 seconds, and one minute of contact with the floor. So we inoculated three different surfaces, tile, wood, laminate, floor, and actually a Berber carpet, and found in all cases that the bacteria was picked up immediately. Bacteria is faster than the human hand, I guess, is the answer to that. Like the double dipping, we found some interesting differences in numbers and amount of bacteria picked up due to the surfaces. Carpet actually was much lower based on what we inoculated than were tile and wood. And common sense would tell you that if you have a bacteria on a surface that's kind of absorbent, somewhat like a carpet, that it's not going to be as much of the surface area exposed with the bacteria on the other hand, the bacteria probably would live longer on a carpet than it would on a tile or survive better because it's kind of protected and there's probably moisture there. Dawson's group also came up with another scary finding. Once a floor is contaminated, it stays that way for a long, long time. Even salmonella, things that are just bacterial cells, survive very long on surfaces. We inoculated tile and left it at really room conditions, temperature, as well as humidity. And the tile feels completely dry. There's no appearance. It's not dirty. But we were recovering bacteria from that tile 28 days later. So that was quite surprising. You think that once it dries out, the bacterial dies. So that was kind of an eye-opening reminder that, you know, the cleaning surfaces after you've had something there like raw food, chicken or whatever, this is very important. However, cleaning in the kitchen isn't foolproof, even when you think it is. Labels on disinfectant cleaners can be misleading. We always hear the use of percent with bacteria. Like this kills 99.9% of the bacteria or something of that nature. And that is somewhat of a misleading terminology because bacteria is in such high concentrations. If you have a highly contaminated surface, like you're preparing raw food or you're in a hospital, killing 99.9% is not going to put you in a safety zone. Now, you know, it's not better than anything, but that's kind of a thing when we deal with bacterial contamination that those percents. Until you get out to 99.999, about four or five nines out there, if it's a highly contaminated surface, then you're still, it's misleading sometimes, I guess what I'm trying to say. So if you drop that chip on the floor, contamination depends a lot more on what's on the floor than how long your chip was there. Most surfaces are not going to have pathogens on them. So 999 times out of 1,000, there's probably nothing there that would hurt you. But I make the analogy, it's kind of like wearing a seatbelt or not. You can drive your whole life, not have an accident, and seatbelt has no effect. But if there's an accident or if you have bacteria there, the seatbelt or not eating the food is probably going to be a good idea. It's almost enough to make you avoid the snacks completely. 
You can find out more about all our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.net. Our production director is Sean Waldron. I'm Nancy Benson. For centuries, deep-sea fishermen have endured coughs and colds while braving the stormy, freezing North Atlantic. In 1865, an English pharmacist developed an all-natural menthol and eucalyptus lozenge to provide them with quick relief. He called them Fisherman's Friend and made them extra strong for powerful relief. Today, Fisherman's Friend all-natural menthol lozenges are still produced exactly according to the original recipe. They're the original strong lozenge for the natural relief of sore throats, coughs, and congestion that works every time. Fisherman's Friend contains the highest allowable dosage of menthol per lozenge, but with no GMOs, no artificial coloring or flavors, and they're even gluten-free. Look for Fisherman's Friend Original Extra Strong or Fisherman's Friend Sugar-Free Cherry, menthol relief with a cherry flavor, in a store nearest you. Fisherman's Friend is strong relief for those strong enough to handle it. Find out more at Fisherman'sFriend.com. The new dietary guidelines for Americans are out, and most of us need to increase the amount of potassium in our diets. In fact, 97% of Americans aren't meeting their daily potassium requirements. However, a new survey by the Idaho Potato Commission finds that fewer than 30% of Americans make an effort to consume potassium every day, or know that potatoes are a great place to get it. Here's Toby Amador, registered dietitian and author of The Greek Yogurt Kitchen. The survey shows that nearly 9 in 10 Americans are aware that bananas are a good source of potassium, but only 27% think this about potatoes. And only 7% of us would incorporate potatoes into meals if they were looking to increase potassium. The truth is that one medium-sized potato with this skin has twice as much potassium as a typical 4-ounce banana. And they're heart-healthy, too. So pass the potatoes, loaded with potassium. Find out more at IdahoPotato.com.